Hello, just to let you know that this episode contains strong language. Welcome to Cornwall, a strange and wild place. A finger of granite, gorse and sand jutting out into the Atlantic Ocean, connected, whether we like it or not, to the arse end of Britain. A land of contradictions. With some of the poorest housing estates in Europe, yet just down the road from quiet villages filled with empty second homes. It's a destination, a resort, a brand. For some people, it's a reality, it's hell, a shithole. For others, it's inspiration, a love affair, a community. But the population is shifting. Tensions are rising. The tide is coming in. What happened in the past for Cornwall to end up this way? What does the future hold for this complicated, self-defining nation? And why do I feel so conflicted about identifying as a Cornish man? Let's find out in The Reason Why. Episode 1. Crisis. What crisis? It's January 2021. I'm walking along a beach as it gets dark. It's a cold winter's day. Uh, I got off work a bit earlier today and I had some crap news that, um, well basically yesterday I went to look at a house for the first time with the idea of maybe buying somewhere of my own one day. And of course I got the news just now that um, that house has gone straight away for way over the asking price, as per usual. Which is ironic, really, considering that I'm walking along a beach right now looking over at the village where I left my car and there's no lights on. It's an empty ghost village. Well, for most of the year, at least. And I know I sound like a grumpy local, but part of me does think, where are they now, eh? Because Cornwall can be pretty bleak and depressing during the winter, but it's worth it. I think you have to wait it out, and then you earn the summer, you earn the payoff. Whereas these guys just turn up for six to eight weeks of the year and frolic about. And I have to remind myself not to put blame on the individuals, that it's all about the system. But that seems so much harder to change. And part of me feels pretty anxious and stressed out about this year and what the summer can bring in terms of people not going abroad and holidaying here and Covid rates. 
And then the other part of me thinks, does it even matter? Because can I even afford to live here? This was me at the beginning of last year when I decided to make this podcast. I'm Seamus Carey. I was born in Cornwall. I grew up here. At 17, I dropped out of college, never finishing my A-levels, but was lucky enough to find work as a musician for theatre and dance. As soon as I could, I moved away, living in Bristol and London, and then touring throughout the UK and US. After seven years, I wanted to come home. I missed the sea, the landscape, but most importantly, the people. I realised that living an itinerant lifestyle meant I actually had very few friends and I longed for community. I came back to do a theatre job in 2018 and never left. At the end of that long, hot summer, I started a male voice community choir with the idea that there might be some other blokes kicking about who'd be up for singing less conventional material. Turned out there were, and Men Are Singing is still going stronger than ever. But more about them later in the series. Starting the choir taught me about the benefits of community, and since then I've sought to embed myself within it as much as possible. Nearly all of my work has become about the place where I live, and I want to be as honest about it as I can. Cornwall frustrates me. I love it, and some days I hate it. In equal measures, it can limit and inspire. For someone like me, a confident, white, heterosexual, cis, non-disabled male, it's easy to fit in and belong. But Cornwall can also be, like most places, I guess, grumpy, unwelcoming, and sometimes xenophobic. I wanted to pick it all apart, to understand what's really going on here. But more immediately, I wanted to know the reason why it's so hard to buy a house right now in the place where I grew up. Cornwall's become very fashionable with the rich. Not everyone can afford a home, let alone a second home. And they come for the views, and they don't necessarily come for the community. You've sold your house in London for a million quid, and you can buy whatever you want. You can. Should you? That's a different question. There's been a housing crisis simmering away for the past few decades. But since Covid, things have got a whole lot worse. The 2020 lockdown saw a great exodus of people migrating from the cities towards the more rural areas of Britain. Busy town centres became an abstract concept. Many people realised they could work from home. Broadband's much better these days. And those who lived in more polluted areas found that they could get much more bang for their buck in a quieter and healthier environment if they up sticks and move to the countryside. And why wouldn't they? I would, if I could. The property market didn't know what had hit it. Cornwall soon overtook London as the most searched place on Rightmove. The house prices rose 48% in places like St Moore's. Some properties sold for 300000 over the asking price. This was all at a time when the Tory government stamp duty holiday was still in full swing, of which around 1.3 million property buyers took advantage of, according to rightmove.com. 
This, of course, included second home and buy-to-let investors. And if you could sell your house and make an absolute bomb, why would you bother renting it out to low-income locals? You could at least Airbnb it for the summer. At the time of making this podcast, there's currently an estimated 10,000 Airbnbs in Cornwall. In March to July 2021, there were 192 properties for tenancy. That's down by 83% compared to October to December 2020, only three months before. I wanted to know more, so I went to speak to someone who's in the thick of it, in an undeniably complex situation. I'm Mark Lewis. I'm one of three directors of Lewis Horton Wills Estate Agents. There is a chronic shortage of property. When there's a shortage of property, people won't sell speculatively. So they wait to find the right property, but the market at the moment is so busy that unless you are cash sold in rented, have a mortgage agreed or have a buyer already lined up, you're going to miss the boat. On the majority of properties that we're selling, we have at least six people for every property that comes on. I wondered if Mark had noticed an increase in the sale of second homes. 20% of holiday homes. Um, the likelihood is the higher the price, then the more likely it is for holiday homes. In any market, the wealthy people have always got money and they can afford to buy where, what they want, where they want. How did Mark feel about this on a personal level? Ultimately, as an agent, it's my job to give my vendor the best choice, so it's always their decision. Some vendors choose to sell to locals, which obviously is an admirable thing. Do they specify that when they talk to you? When we put forward offers, we will outline the position of each person, why they want to buy, whether they want to live in a house, you know, they've got kids they have a local connection or whether they simply want to pay the money and use it as a holiday property. It's the vendor's choice, but yeah, some vendors um, would prefer to sell to locals. Others are quite happily take the extra money. It seemed to me that his professionalism kept Mark at arm's length from the morality of this current crisis. But there was an irony to the success of his business. Cornwall is a lovely place to live. I'm privileged to live here. I choose to bring my kids up here. Um, Yeah, they're going to have the same problem as everyone else trying to get on the housing ladder. And I suppose, having done the job for 36 years, the profile now for a local first-time buyer is they're probably now in their early 30s, they've saved a bigger deposit, they probably get help from Bank of Mum and Dad to assist purchase. But how did he feel about this? It's very upsetting. Sometimes we've got one couple who've offered on three properties through us in a best and final and have lost out on each occasion. Um, which, yeah, it's people's lives we're dealing with. It's very upsetting. That, unfortunately, is reality of the markets. It could be easy to put the blame on the estate agent here, but ultimately, it's the system that lacks compassion and morals. Uh, We like to run this company very much on a moral basis, but as I say, we've got to be extremely mindful of what our job is, which is to act for the vendor. So what about renting? It seems at the moment that my social media feed is constantly full of mates of mine looking for houses to rent in Cornwall. 
With four days to go before our eviction day, it genuinely became one of the most stressful experiences of my life. This is my mate Jenna. Her and her husband got given an eviction notice from their landlord. Any house you saw on the market, there would be at least 40 people ahead of you. They would close viewings within hours because there was so much demand for any house. And I mean any house. Because of COVID, it gave us extended time on our notice. But yeah, it came right to the end of our... Like We really did just cut it fine. After following several leads from social media posts, they did finally find somewhere albeit a little overpriced. I think doing that call out on social media was a big help. This is uh, not going away, I don't think. It makes me really sad to think that there are families and people now stuck in an eternal loop of jumping from winter let to temporary let to winter let to temporary lets. It's really sad. And it was here where Jenna found herself in the moral conundrum which I often do too. Oh, I don't know, I don't know how to feel about it because I've genuinely met people now since who have said, oh yeah, I really struggled to find a place and I've spoken to a few people and I'm like, oh yeah, it was horrible, wasn't it? And then they reveal that they moved down. So they were one of the, you know, the people that moved here from a different place. A anyone is entitled to live where they want to live. If you want to move out of the city, then fine. You should be allowed to move out of the city. So I guess that's not really the problem, is it? The problem is that the sheer number of people who decided to have that change in their life all happened at the same time. And they're all coming to a place that's dominated by empty homes, being holiday lets or Airbnbs. Um, it's really sad. There is enough housing for these people. There genuinely is. They're just all empty. They're all holiday lets. They'd all rather sit empty for half the year and make more money that way for the flux of people in summers. Jenna is an amazing photographer. And I should probably mention here that she moved down from London three years ago. But what happens if you get evicted and you can't find anywhere to live? What happens when it gets messy? That was it, they just started grabbing, throwing us to the ground, wrestling us, like using any physical force they could to get to the door, really. Wow. Um, and then we ended up having to retreat right to the front door where we eventually sort of huddled up and the police were behind watching the whole time saying that they were there to prevent a breach of the peace. This is Dan. He's the comms officer for the Falmouth and Penryn branch of Acorn UK. It's a national organisation and it has local branches all over the country and it's a tenants and community union. It operates like the old trade unions except that you know instead of it being for a certain industry it's for basically just anyone who's renting or anyone who lives in a community so it, it literally could be for anyone. This branch was only established in 2020 and I was curious to know what made Dan, a recent graduate, get involved. It's only been making big news very recently, but the housing crisis has been a long-running thing. It just steadily gets worse and worse. I think now it's kind of at a breaking point. So the way that at least I or we see it is um, a chaotic, uncontrolled profit fest. There's so much money in Cornwall in terms of the people that are investing in it, people who are driving up prices so much, and also turning a lot of properties into essentially vacant properties that are only occupied for a couple of weeks out of the year or just coming down for a temporary stay. Um, which they can charge a lot more money for, um, for less time. So there's less incentive to rent their properties out um, permanently to people. You know, I think people forget that there are people here who have born here, who have kids here, who need to move out someday. And 
they probably want to live in their hometown, you know, that they've lived in their whole life. In September 2021, things really kicked off for Acorn. Mike Osborne of Penryn, a single dad who works in the charity sector, received an eviction notice from his landlord saying he was selling up. He spent six months desperately looking for a house, but to no avail. He said he lost out on one house when a rival bidder tenant offered 12 months rent, £18,000 in advance. Mr Osborne pleaded with his landlord, took the case to court, but was finally told that the bailiffs would arrive at midday Friday the 17th of September. He had no choice but to contact Acorn as a last-ditch attempt to avoid homelessness. And so we turned up, about 20 strong of us. Again, really like mixed group of people. There were like children, old people, women, men, young, old. It was, it was really good to see and a really good turnout. And then four or five police show up first and then the bailiffs shortly after. And there was a bit of negotiation of them, you know, arguing that they're just here to do their job, we're just here to evict this person. We were saying, you know, this guy may have the right to sell his house, but he does the right to make someone homeless <laughs> when they've got a family. It seemed to work. The bailiffs backed off. They didn't want to cause a scene with such a large group of people and of mixed ages. After a while, the crowd began to disperse. Um, some people went off to get food, some people went off to just go about their day and do things before coming back. And there's about eight of us left that stuck around at the property. And so the bailiffs turned up again. This time there was no negotiation, really. They just saw the line of us there and that was it. They just started grabbing, throwing us to the ground, wrestling us, like using any physical force they could to get to the door. Really. Like that. We are, we are, we are like these force. You're breaking the gate! The landlord's giving us some. What you want? Jesus Christ! No! Then we ended up having to retreat right to the front door where we eventually sort of huddled up and the police were behind watching the whole time saying that they were there to prevent a breach of the peace. No! He's hurt, he's hurt. What's this? What's this? Look at his leg. He needs help. They were watching you guys being physically manhandled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what did the police do? They did nothing. They were saying that um, they were there to stop breach of the peace. We're not hurting anyone at all. I'm afraid of how far this is going to go. I'd like to get you guys in, and I think the actual outcome of this... Yeah, you're going to get nicked, mate. You're going to lose your job over this. Eventually, the police called it off. The bailiffs were sent home. This bought Mr Osborne some much-needed extra time. However, there was now a new worry. That this tenant wouldn't find another place because of the publicity that it got. We wondered if like landlords would be less keen to rent him. They think like, you know, if I, if I want to sell my property, you know, I don't want this guy staying here because, you know, he's going to turn up with 20 people if I try and get rid of him. But luckily he found a place a week later. Um, in Truro, so that sort of that week of time that we bought him was enough for him to then to move. So Mr. Osborne did find somewhere to live. But what about the other character in this story? What do you know about the landlord? We knew that he was um, a very rich um, owner of a, of a of a company, you know, multi-millionaire. I think he's I think he owned quite a few properties. After news went out about the plight of Mr. Osborne. The Acorn team found themselves getting busy. We got a lot of people messaging with similar situations. I think then you start to realise the sort of enormity of the situation when you've got people who are, you know, telling these stories of what's going, what they're going through, and asking for help, sort of like literally just crying out for anything, like for anything to be done about it because they just can't do anything about it. Do you see it just getting worse and worse? Yeah, at the moment, at the moment I do, but 
the optimist in me is saying it wants to be like we can make a difference here. I think we can say enough is enough. I had one last question for Dan. If you met a second homeowner, what would you say to him? I think I'd just say, like, do you feel like you're a part of your community? Like this home that you own, do you, do you feel like it's beneficial to the community that it's in? And if it's not, then why not? And why is that okay? So people have got to live there. These aren't holiday resorts, these are towns. If I was to talk to a second homeowner, I just want to go over the, the whole enormity of the situation and what role a second home plays in that and what I think responsibility lies on your shoulders if you are going to own a second home. So, I thought it was about time we spoke to a second homeowner. For the sake of privacy, I'm going to call this man Roger. I am being interviewed by you, Seamus, um, uh, for my home in London. My wife and I have both worked on and off in the city of London in the world of finance and business in relatively normal sorts of ways. Now, I should explain here that sometimes for my day job, I'm a piano tuner. I've tuned pianos for a wide range of people all over Cornwall, and sometimes I turn up to a job to find it's for a second home. I'm never quite sure how to feel about this. When I tuned Roger's piano, he was a very friendly and accommodating man, and we got on really well. So a few months later, I rang him up for an interview, because I wanted to get inside the mind of a second homeowner. And we started going on very simple, straightforward family holidays, to start with, to North Cornwall. But in fact, it turns out that some of our, one of my close friends and his wife, who only has six children, have a house, uh, a sort of shack on the beach at Porth Hallow. And we started literally returning to the area, the, the, well, the east side of the Lizard every year ever since for very conventional family holidays, renting, uh, renting houses in the normal rental market. So we are not just incomers, we're incomers uh, in holiday incomers in, in this generation, as it were. I wanted to know if Roger, before being a family man, had come on holiday to Cornwall. I have no personal connection with that part of the world prior to that at all. That said, actually, it's interesting. I did have a friend at university. So I came down to visit some of her friends once, and I think I was at university in the early 80s, um, in very late 70s, early 80s. And, um, and otherwise, my first ever foray down the A30, as it was then, would have been then. And I, was, I remember thinking at the time, I was pretty shocked by what I, what I saw, because and at that time, it seemed to me that the sort of rural life and landscape of central Cornwall and a bit further west was very, very basic indeed. The sort of properties people seem to be living in and so on. I mean, I, I'm more familiar with the you know, home counties and sort of Sussex and Hampshire and Wiltshire places. And it did seem, I was surprising, it did seem considerably de uh, depressed, you could say, or basic, uh, backward possibly. But then I only spent two or three days there. But it was something I, 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 was, very, I was surprised about. Still, it didn't put him off buying a house on the Helford River. I wondered how much Roger knew about what goes on in Cornwall when you're not on holiday. There's a very strong Cornish identity and culture where there's the language, there's all the mythology and the traditions and the, the quite wacky customs that you get at festivals. How, how sort of aware of that are you in, in terms of like a, a Cornish nationalist identity? 
How often, how, how aware of that are you? Honestly, nothing, not at all, really, I don't think. And I can't say we've necessarily sorted out. We're not necessarily the people who would. But, I mean, look, if you go into a pub, and we go into quite a few, I've never come across any sort of Cornish folk band in the, in the corner. Um, they, they must exist here and there. Um, I, honestly, I, I don't think we've ever noticed some sort of event or something somewhere that was for sort of Cornish types only or something. I, I, we, we really, I, I don't think so. Um, well, there may be certain villages, certain spots and certain places where these things are still sort of relatively alive, but uh, we've never noticed it, to be honest with you. So Roger seems pretty unaware of Cornish culture and of what some people might say is what defines this place. There's, there's not much in the way of life, I don't think, that I have seen in the area that we've now got to know quite well that is any different, really, to huge swathes of sort of southern, southern England. I wouldn't want to sort of completely deny or destroy a true Cornish person's sort of love for their background and heritage, but you can take it a bit far, really. I mean, I, I, you know, we all benefit from our visits to, to, to Cornwall, and Cornwall heavily benefits from the investment that people like. I mean, we've invested a lot of money in Cornwall already, and we, we spend a lot of money in Cornwall every year, and you've had some of it, and, other, you know, and that's deliberate. It's quite deliberate. And Stop. Now, this is something I've heard second homeowners say many times before. We put a lot of money into this area, so that makes it okay that we don't live here full time. I think it works for works for everybody. I, I, it's hard for me at the moment to see any sort of real downside for for the, the local those who are permanently resident in the area. I mean, uh, of course, there are probably tensions over medical services and education, maybe, and, and so on. But I mean, it's it's a sort of it seems to me, it seems to us to, to, to work. For Roger, it works. He had a pretty positive view on Cornwall's current status. I think Cornwall should pat itself on the back. I think Cornwall's very, very well placed if, you know, to provide all sorts of things for people. I have a personal view that the victim status of some of our more remote territories, you know, Scotland, Wales, Cornwall, is, is ridiculous, really. I mean, come on. I, I, what's the point in wallowing in cash being funneled from the rest of the country? That seems a bit pointless. I mean, the Scots and the Welsh, I mean, people are like, do they, okay, everybody wants to run themselves, but they, you know, if the money's coming from somewhere else, well, you know, maybe you just have to sort of live with that. I, I think Cornwall should sort of be what it is. I think, I, you know, you shouldn't complain. I mean, you know, if they want to have a Cornish language festival, fine. Hold one and I'm sure they'll get lots of visitors and they'll sell lots of beer. I don't think that's why people would want to hold a Cornish language festival. I asked Roger if he was aware of the tensions around second homes and if he felt any guilt. We see absolutely no reason at all why some folks like us couldn't do what we're doing with this house in Helford, which we're going to you know, do some work on later this year, all being well, um, and operate it and live in it and provide it uh, with our family for many, many, many years. We can't see any, any long-term threat to any of that or any reason why that would come to a halt or something or not provide a very long-term um, uh, no, it is visiting. This is it recre yeah, it's recreational opportunities, let's call it that. The holidays aren't quite the right word. Roger sees no reason why owning a second home could be a bad idea. But then again, why would he? Because all of this 
is a story of economics and wealth. And with that comes the difficulty of dividing the fantasy from the reality. I'm fascinated by how Cornwall is perceived by those who don't live here. Since the coming of the railway and tourism, people have projected whatever dream they wish upon these strange and alluring shores. But where did this obsession come from? How did Cornwall become such a playground for the rich? And why was nearly every TV show during lockdown about Cornwall? Find out next time in The Reason Why. The Reason Why was written, presented and produced by Seamus Carey. The music was by him too. Additional production on the theme tune was by Mr. B.J. Jackson. Graphic design by Philida Blumel. Photography by Steve Tanner. Special thanks to all our contributors, as well as the Holman Climax Male Voice Choir for the sampling of their 1974 album, The Reason Why. The associate producer was Charlie Bunker. The executive producer was Paul Dodgson. This was an Impossible Producing and Seamus Carey production funded by Arts Council England. <laughs>